Colin Cavana of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of Motorsports Analytics. On this episode, the first peer rankings are out. We'll go over the good, the bad, the surprises, and the overachievers. And we're going to Atlanta again. <laughs> What's changed since early March? We'll tell you. But first, as always, this is episode 64 of Positive Regression. This is the Elmo Langley edition. David, the name Elmo, an all-timer in terms of names in NASCAR. Uh, Elmo Langley, the NASCAR native, has a deep history. Uh, NASCAR native. The North Carolina native has a deep history in this sport, uh, a history that extended all the way to our modern-day love of the 90s. Um, he competed in 27 different seasons. He had two career wins. Both of them came in the same season, oddly. And he did it in a number 64 car. David, what should we know about Elmo Langley? You gotta love a guy named Elmo, right? Yeah. Muppet or otherwise. <laughs> uh, so I, I will say I thought that he had a particularly fascinating career. He was one of the, uh, the rare modified studs to go into stock car racing during that time. And he I did pretty well. I mean, he, he pretty much competed for himself. He owned his own car. He, uh, in addition to the two race wins that you spoke of, he scored career highs in top 10 finishes in 1968 and 1969 at an interesting age, Alan, 39 and um. 40. And um, more impressively, I think, he was the car owner of uh, the number 64 for other drivers. Uh, Jack Ingram drove for him in the Cup Series. So did Bud Moore. So did Dave Marcus. So did Jimmy Hensley, who we talked about in last week's episode. And in 1984, he put a plucky rookie named Ken Schrader in his car. He gave Ken Schrader his start in the Cup Series. Elmo went on to become the NASCAR Cup Series pace car driver uh, in the late 80s until his death in 1996. So he was always around, always a character. Um, but certainly, uh, made his bona fides, uh, originally as a driver. And in doing the research, uh, his death unfortunately came on NASCAR's trip over to Japan, um, when he was scheduled to drive the pace car there. And, um, the circumstances, uh, listed, uh, list as a heart attack. So just one of those odd quirks in NASCAR history that in those few times they went over to Japan, uh, that's unfortunately where, uh, he met his, uh, death. And so, but a, a lot of good history there for episode 64. David, uh, interesting piece. I, I've enjoyed these ever since about number 51 or so. I've learned a lot from these obscure kind of numbers and I appreciate your work on this stuff, David. Yeah, it's been it's been uh, a lot of fun. I think there are some good characters uh nestled deep into the sports history that I'm happy to shed a light on and Elmo Langley's one. I mean, I remember being a fan at this time um in the late 80s, early 90s and just knew him as the pace car driver. Never knew much about him as a race car driver in his own right and because of this I got to learn about that. Episode 64, Positive Regression, the Elmo Langley edition. Let's get it started. David, we are nine races into the season, which is a quarter of the way through the intended 36 se uh, race season. And so that means it is a good, I think, sample set. And it is time for your first peer rankings of the year. First of all, let's go over what peer is and why it's important and the rankings that we are about to unveil. Uh, give a quick overview of peer for us. 
What is PEER? That is a good question. Uh, PEER stands for Production and Equal Equipment Rating. And I created that in 2010 as a talent evaluator. I revealed it to the public in 2012. And it is a rating that considers a driver's race result and handicaps team and equipment strength that I am able to glean using the GPS data, the kind of data that is available to manufacturers and teams in a proprietary formula. And this is all done in an attempt to isolate a driver's contribution. Uh, I will say that the average peer among all drivers for an individual season hovers around the one point mark. The average last year was around a 0.965. We're kind of in that same trajectory, and that's probably where we'll end the season. But uh, as you've seen, Alan has a, a sneak peek of Peer. It is now posted on motorsportsanalytics.com for all of the Steve Park patrons uh, to look at. There are some curiously high numbers, and there are some lower numbers, uh, lower than that average even, that I think deserve some talking about. And that's what we're going to get on. So remember, when you're thinking peer, it's about the driver and his or her contribution uh, to to the team and to its results, what the driver is doing. So let's go over the good and the bad of the initial peer ratings for 2020. Uh, the good and the bad happen to be Kevin Harvick and Martin Truex. So we're going to start with the good uh, with Kevin Harvick. 44-year-old Kevin Harvick leads the series in peer. Now, you may not be surprised, David, to hear that because he is Kevin Harvick, but are you surprised how good he's doing because his ranking, is his rating, is pretty high up there? Hmm. The, the, the fact that he is number one does not surprise me. I think it's the how of how he is producing some of these results because it is much different than in years past. And I uh, wrote about this last week for Motorsports Analytics about stylistically what has changed with Kevin Harvick. And he he used to just be, I called him the, the all-around apex predator, just in traffic. If you needed a spot, Kevin Harvick could get you a spot. And last year, whether it be due to old age simple regression because his numbers in 2017, 2018 were sky high, or uh, just the change in the rules package. Maybe he didn't take to that as well as he should have. That makes sense when you consider uh, sort of his late-breaking style into corners has is, is, is been eliminated somewhat with this new rules package. But he's not that guy anymore. He's a different guy. He's a short-run guy. And where Stuart Haas Racing has had success – uh, at the end of last year and the early part of this year, is thriving on the short runs. Harvick is still an excellent restarter. And there has been another wrench that maybe we should have expected because nothing this good lasts forever. But Harvick and the number four team are producing the fifth fastest car right now in the Cup Series. That's good. I'm not going to take anything away from Stuart Haas with that. But it's curious because that is the slowest that Kevin Harvick has been hmm. since he joined Stuart Haas in 2014. So he's doing a little bit extra carrying just to get these kind of results. And we mentioned him along with Martin Truex because I think that there is some symmetry here. 
Um, let's talk about Truex. He, he and the 19 team are producing the eighth fastest car in the series. So slower than Harvick, but for the most part, pretty close, right? Well, their finishing averages are separated by 10 spots. Harvick is a 6.0 average finish. Truex is at 16.6. Yet Truex has a below average production and equal equipment rating right now. Whereas Harvick is getting good finishes out of otherwise bad races, we've talked about the second Darlington race in which he finished third, thanks mostly to Rodney Childers' decision to skip a pit stop during the second stage. Harvick was good enough to sustain the track position that he was given. Martin Truex has had similar instances himself this year, but he has struggled to build anything out of them. Uh, and, and one that comes to mind, the, the most notable occurrence, I think, was Las Vegas. James Small long pitted the race's second green flag pit cycle, and that moved Truex from 21st to 3rd. The caution comes out. Truex pits. He loses five spots, but it's still not bad because he's going to restart eighth, which means he netted out 13 positions from the beginning of the cycle. But even considering that he had a preferred groove restart position, he immediately loses three spots on the restart. He loses 10 spots on the restart 40 laps later, and he finished uh, in the race in 20th after having mm-hmm. pancaked the wall. And and look, are those situations identical and equal? No, but those are two different examples of how good drivers with good teams are able to take a gift of track position and either capitalize or fail to capitalize. And I think those two instances embody the season for both of those drivers. Uh, both of them have been in good situations, but it's only Harvick is the is the one who's capitalized. I don't expect the season to pan out that way for Truex. Uh, for one, he has a top 15 efficiency of negative 17.5%, which means he is really not finishing where he's running. Uh, but this also tells me that he would be hard-pressed to duplicate such a horrendous effort. He has a positive surplus passing value. It's much more efficient than Harvick's value. And he'll likely bounce back. But right now, it is abundantly clear that the number 19 team has underperformed relative to their speed and their expectation. And Truex deserves some of the blame, as Pierre tells us. Yeah, and you do projection. You had done projections going into the season. You know, looking at the projections versus the reality, uh, would you say Martin Truex Jr. is the biggest uh, offender, if you will, the worst offender in terms of what's happening in ter- uh, compared to what was projected of him? Well, I'm offended, Alan. I mean, you know, <laughs> a little bit. That is probably fair. Um, I think when we consider that he was. At what is often a driver's statistical peak last year at age 39, I think it's fair to expect a little bit of drop off. I mean, as especially after the season that he enjoyed last year and just in terms of superficial stats, he's without Cole Pern. So we'd be foolish to think that there isn't some sort of adjustment period. And I think we're seeing that. Uh, maybe 
maybe it is James Small's uh, loss uh, for the Coca-Cola 600. Maybe we can hang that on the crew chief. But Truex has had moments where he has appeared fallible. Uh, same with his crew chief, same with his pit crew. And the team as a whole has had a litany of mistakes define their season and sort of cloud where they are from a speed perspective. I don't think that that persists for the rest of the year. Ultimately, they're going to get results commensurate of their ability. But so far in these first nine races, we have not seen that. And I think this is truly a case of everybody in that situation together are to blame for this sluggish start in just drastically different ways. Interesting stuff for two big names in the sport, nine races into the season. Those are two veterans, David. Let's go down the list to John Hunter Nemechek, who on the initial peer rankings comes out as the top rookie. And I want to pat myself on the back because I just remember going into the season. I asked you, David, would it surprise you if John Hunter Nemechek ends the season as the top peer rated rookie? Uh, you told me no, but I was a big believer as well in him. Uh, just so far watching John Hunter Nemechek on the track, I mean, he just passes the smell test, right? We know what kind of equipment he is in with Front Row Motorsports, what it's done in the past. And now all of a sudden you have this rookie driver giving it top 15s, top 10s, you know, running where you don't expect it to. It doesn't surprise me he is higher up on the list than especially all the, all the other rookies in the field this year and above some veterans as well. Uh, what should we know about John Hunter Nemechek? Yeah, at the beginning of the season, he was projected to have the second highest peer among rookies. And right now it is the highest. And I think it's been, it's certainly been a fun season watching them. It's been entertaining. Uh, you know, we talked about crew chiefs putting their drivers in good positions John Hunter Nemechek's crew chief is Seth Barber, and he's done this all season long with Nemechek. Uh, 40 positions gained via green flag pit cycles. So he's put Nemechek in good positions, but Nemechek has taken that track position and rolled with it. He holds a positive surplus passing value, telling us that he's, uh, he's moving up through the field when given this track position, which is pretty impressive. Those, that's, that's higher competition, uh, higher up in the field. So that is good. His ability to pass that we saw and complemented so often in the Xfinity series and truck series, that has translated. And amazingly, he has done all of this. Uh, he has one of the highest crash frequencies in the series right now, a 0.56 crash per race measure, mm -hmm. those crashes take opportunities for results off the table. And it's possible his frequency dissipates and we see some improvement despite a very large top 15 efficiency, which is right now over 21%. That suggests he's a regression candidate. But uh, it strikes me that this is this is something that has been encouraged. Not the crashing, but the hard driving. And I, uh, I spent some time this week talking with Front Row Motorsports General Manager Jerry Freeze, and I asked him about the crashing. And, and he laughed and he said that this really isn't something that Front Row has ever had the pleasure of experiencing. And he talked about his, uh, the, the crew guys at the Front Row shop and, and Jerry Freeze said that, 
they don't mind fixing the cars that he's torn up because he's going fast and he's going forward and they haven't had a lot of that. So he's, he's trying to get out there and get a top 12, a top 10 position and something like what happened on the last lap in Phoenix or Las Vegas. Jerry said that he, he free said that he got into a little bit of a skirmish and they usually don't like it too much when a driver is running in the back all day, but Nemechek isn't running 30th. He is competing for legitimate results and front row motorsports has never had a driver like this in their history. So right now the attitude's pretty good. The fab shop is, was happy for repairing a car because they know that they have a driver capable of bringing home a very good result. And that's clear right now when watching John Hunter Nemechek and uh, it shows ranked 18th in pier right now. Yeah. And you mentioned a good top 15 efficiency and people should take from that is that he is finishing in the top 15 a lot more, 20% more than he's running in the top 15 during a race. I don't know. That suggests he's a closer or what have you, but it's a good stat to have. So we'll see if he can keep it up. Next up on the list, we mentioned both Truex and John Hunter Nemechek. Below them on the peer rankings, William Byron. Uh, a little surprising given how successful, uh, we've, you know, talked up Hendrick and how fast they are, but maybe that's helping in this peer ranking because David, they have fast race cars. William Byron at the moment, not getting the results you would expect out of a car that fast. Is that fair? Uh, that's very fair. Right now he's tied for 22nd in pier with Martin Truex. So it's kind of two drivers in the same boat, right? William Byron right now might be the biggest positive regression candidate we have given that he was one of the best passers last year in the cup series. He was the number one passer in the playoffs alone. And right now he's one of the 10 most efficient passers in the series this year, all in. He has the 10th fastest car, but it's clear the results simply aren't commensurate with the effort. It's not as if he's crashing a lot. That's not the way to put this, but he is crashing at inopportune times. He crashed within the final 10% of the race at Las Vegas, Phoenix, and in the Coca-Cola 600. And that is problematic. He was running fifth in Vegas and sixth in the 600. An optimist would tell you that this kind of thing can't sustain this odd timing. Um, and that's what it is. It's odd. So, you know, given that most, if not everything, uh, outside of the result is a positive for William Byron, then yes, he's a candidate to improve over the uh, final three quarters of the season. And I think that's obvious. When you watch him during the race, he's clear and present. He's just not visible at the finish. And that's the one thing that's going to have to change. Yeah, he's been on the wrong end of some other aggression, and uh, I know that's not something we can really <laughs> measure. But you know, like, like in Daytona, and I believe it was either well, Phoenix or uh, or Las Vegas, uh, you know, he got booted out of the way, and uh, eventually he, he's got to be the one booting people out of the way at, at some point. But that that's a, a non measurable. I just wanted to throw in there. But yeah, William Byron, a, a candidate for positive regression because the car that fast and his talent, you wouldn't expect this to keep up. So watch him as we start into the second quarter of the season. Next up, David, Corey LaJoy, uh, far 
outperforming his expectation. Uh, again, this is measuring what he has to work with versus what he's doing with it. Uh, how big is this for Corey LaJoy in what is we know next year will be a lot of open rides? And I don't know if we've mentioned him enough in terms of names to potentially fill these free agency rides, but he, he's making us uh, look at him, or at least making other teams put him on the list with the Brad Kislowskis and the same list Ryan Blaney and Alex Bowman used to be on, all that stuff. He's making people pay attention. It's been nothing short of an extraordinary year for him, given the team that he's with, go fast racing, having fuel cell problems, engine problems, like it just doesn't get up to speed on restarts. Um, there's a lot working against him this year. Uh, even with go fast having the Stuart Haas racing Alliance, they rank outside the top 30 in central speed. Again, that's kind of haven't, has not changed. They ranked 32nd last year. Um, and this isn't a surprise. Uh, I wrote about go fast racing, uh, during the off season and, uh, their crew chief last year, Randy Cox shed some light on what to expect from the technical alliance that they were going to share with Stuart Haas. And I'll read his words. So far, they they seem pretty spot on. But he said, without stepping up to the next engine package, it wasn't worth it to me to beat my head against the wall again, especially with the outside world looking in saying, oh, they've got the Stuart Haas alignment. Well, you're not getting shocks. You're not getting springs, <laughs> not getting different things. You're going to get a little bit of engineering help that says, okay, you're heading in the right direction, but that's about it. You're not going to get their setup sheets or any of that stuff, but the outside world thinks you do. Kind of like the engine package, you're not competitive on a lot of different fronts. So uh, while he, Randy Cox did point out that they would be having new cars this year or newer cars this year compared to the cars that they were running last year, some of which were from 2012, um, that has improved. There's still a lot going against Corey LaJoy, but he's still able to get results. He ranks 16th in peer, and that is astounding. He is getting results he shouldn't. And, and that could regress. That that could happen and probably will. But his underlying numbers, namely his surplus passing value, which is currently a plus 2.31%, that is a top 10 value. And that is very good. That is something to which big teams should pay close attention, and I'm curious to see if they will. Yeah, I was just going to ask you. We know, you know, this business uh, from a different angle, but just from the outside, I mean, look, not everyone is a positive regression listener, surprisingly, and that includes team principals who make decisions. Do you think Corey LaJoy gets a fair shake when it comes to free agency? Can someone look beyond Go Fast, the name Go Fast Racing and see what Corey LaJoy is doing. Do you trust these team principals to give him a fair shake? I, I probably wouldn't have eight years ago, but now we are in an era where Alex Bowman didn't perform well in back marker cup equipment and was given a chance and has so far, um, I think, acquitted himself very well. John Hunter Nemechek was driving for a GMS racing team that knew it was going out of business for the better part of a year last season turned in some fantastic underlying stats and that was recognized by Front Row Motorsports. So I think the good news is 
that the sport in terms of evaluation is trending in the right direction. Um, I don't know if it is trending so far the other way in time for Corey LaJoy to be rewarded for the kind of performance that he is turning in this year. Um, you would like to think that teams are giving a little bit more consideration than just looking at the race results. Uh, I think it was last year Corey LaJoy told me that Really, if they finish 28th, they should be high-fiving and having beers after the race because <laughs> that that is the closest thing. Realistically, that's the closest thing that they're going to uh, have as a win on the day. Do other teams consider that, though? Do teams with uh, the waterfront property, we'll call it, in the garage, would they consider that? I don't know. But I will say that I'm bullish on the idea just because of drivers like Bowman and like Nemechek, who are having uh, visible good runs that probably weren't expected, maybe Corey LaJoy gets uh, get some different consideration because of that. Maybe maybe other drivers are being looked at a little bit differently just because that's what has worked. That is where drivers have been found. That, that could be a tide lifting all boats. All right, good stuff there. Uh, finally, maybe one of the bigger surprises of the first nine races of the season. We're talking about Austin Dillon. Uh, in terms of peer ranking, a healthy 14th place for Austin Dillon right now. Uh, j- just in the last, you know, since we've been back from the break, I, I think he's had a really healthy four race run in the, in this comeback. Probably should have had more in terms of the results, but where he's been running on the track has been higher than, uh, we've expected in the past. But, David, like we mentioned with William Byron being a little surprisingly too low, uh, is Austin Dillon a little too high in terms of what he can maintain? Again, a potential candidate for some regression here. Okay, so the frame of reference here, Austin Dillon's projected peer for the 2020 season is a 0.762. That is a below average rating. He has essentially doubled it. He's at 1.417. He ranks 14th. Dylan absolutely has finished well. That is inarguable. He's been alive on on most of these late race restarts. And in the case of Las Vegas, he actually advanced two positions in the final two laps. And that's sort of how he's subsisting right now. He's averaging a 2.8 position increase within the final 10% of each race. But as you mentioned, yeah, we, we probably should expect regression just because there are warning signs. His negative 3.04% surplus passing value is the worst among drivers ranked in the top 15 and peer. Uh, those, those drivers that are very productive don't usually have uh, passing numbers that poor. His restart retention, especially from the non-preferred groove, is well below average, and that should directly impact more results going forward. And if we factor in his top 15 efficiency, plus 13.1%, that is a bit high. Uh, it means he is overachieving. I would expect that to come down along with his average finish, which right now ranks higher than the likes of Clint Boyer, Martin Truex, Ryan Blaney, Jimmy Johnson, Alex Bowman, and William Byron. Uh, so wow. the pair is true. That is real. It has been a productive start to the season, no doubt, but I will be surprised if he's able to sustain that. 
Good stuff. First peer rankings of the year. Kevin Harvick, good. Martin Truex Jr., not so good. And a little surprise from Austin Dillon. We'll see what they can do as we head to Atlanta. This week's race preview is sponsored by MonkeyKnifeFight.com. MonkeyKnifeFight.com is the fastest growing daily fantasy website on the planet. And this weekend, it'll feature multiple head-to-head games around the Atlanta race. It's simple. Monkey Knife Fight offers a fantasy point structure that is easy to understand, and its app has a clean, user-friendly interface. So if you're a knowledgeable NASCAR fan, there is nothing holding you back. Put your smarts to the test. We can help you if you sign up for a new account using the promo code POSREGPOD, that is P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D, you will receive a 100% match bonus up to $50. Just use promo code POSREGPOD at monkeyknifefight.com. State and age restrictions apply. See site for full terms and restrictions. And David, tell me if you heard this before. We are going to Atlanta. Yes, this was the spot that we were all ready to go to. We had done a great preview on episode 52 about the track in Hampton, Georgia, and then the world changed. Well, I'm happy that we are back, that we are going once again, and we can preview Atlanta once again, because even though it has been, what, three or four months, um, you know, we have some uh, different data and some new information to think of when looking at the track. So that's what we're going to do here. So it's the same thing we've been doing the last few weeks. Uh, before we look too far forward, let's go back and look at last year's race, the 2019 edition at Atlanta, to see how it was won and see what we can apply to 2020. Go back to 2019, Brad Keselowski won this race. He was one of three Penske drivers to lead more than 30 laps that day. In fact, David, the 33 laps that Brad Keselowski led were the final 33 laps of the race. So you tell us, how was this race won on that day? Yeah, and what put Brad Keselowski over the top last year were 16 laps following the final restart, which came on lap 283. And in those 16 laps, Keselowski was fast on new tires and he had clean air. He was two-tenths of a second faster on average than Martin Truex. After those 16 laps, Truex's car was the fastest. He was far better on old tires by a tenth of a second on average in the final 27 laps. But it was that initial 16 laps that Keselowski ripped off, a little under 25 miles in a 500-mile race. That offered Keselowski enough of a cushion to uh, drive away. His car was pretty close to perfect on new tires. He got to clean air first. And that was it. That is that is how he won. The race decided just in that short pocket. And that's something that we're going to have to look at when we consider track position is who can navigate well on old tires because it may come down to a situation very similar to that one. Interesting stuff, especially for a 500-mile race. Again, I, we, we talked about this in the 600, how, how short runs could prove uh, very valuable in a 600-mile race. It's the same thing for the 500 coming up in Atlanta. You talked about track position. Uh, we know what kind of uh, track this is. You just mentioned how hard it is to pass. Also, no qualifying. So how what should we expect from that? Because we know it's kind of a luck of a draw. How should teams expect to move through the field? And before you answer that, I want to just point out last week, Again, in Bristol, no qualifying, and you rightly pointed out two quality passers 
in that type of air in that type of uh, race package were Clint Boyer and Jimmy Johnson, and they ended up finishing second and third. So what I'm telling you, listener, is pay attention to what David is about to say. Uh, yeah, no, no, uh, no pressure there. So <laughs> if if the handling is right at Atlanta, I, I think a driver could move through the field because there isn't qualifying. I think we're going to see a lot of initial movement. That could be really interesting. Martin Truex and Kyle Busch had adjusted pass efficiencies last year above 60%, and that is high. Uh, Keselowski, the race winner, had a 55% adjusted pass efficiency, and he only had the sixth fastest car. And because he was managing those tires so well, he could sort of move with ease and then take advantage once he had clean air. This won't be a race in which a two-tire stop can flip track position because the lap time fall off is so large. But like we talked about, with this tire management comes an ability to maneuver, and that does include the restarts. And Truex comes to mind as a driver who was able to gain spots from Atlanta's non-preferred groove last year. And so did Denny Hamlin, and so did, get this, Daniel Hemrick, and he's not even in the week uh, in this weekend's race. We can talk a little bit more about restarts, Alan, but there's a notion this weekend that we haven't experienced in recent weeks and that the non-preferred groove is still not preferred, but it might not stop an ensuing run dead in its tracks just by the manner in which a driver can negotiate how he restarts on cold, old tires that could be telling. There also might not be many scenarios in which that actually happens. Um, so it's, it is a bit of a free for all. This is a track that leans heavily on driver skill, which I, th- I think is something that <laughs> listeners can agree we, we do like to see. Absolutely. Moving all around, tire management. Hopefully that's a thing over 500 mile race and, uh, you know, getting track position. That's what it'll be about. You mentioned the restarts. We, we, we seem to mention every, uh, the, the stats at least for every, every week here on positive regression. So what is the restart dynamic at Atlanta? It's a bit of a weird one. Uh, and, and I want to go across the cup race and the Xfinity race to illustrate my point, but this was a track where the groove preference may have been impacted last year by low horsepower, high downforce. The preference switched from the inside in 2018 to the outside in 2019. 81% to 43% was the retention difference in last year's race. But that's for the Cup Series race. For the Xfinity Series, the opposite occurred. It shifted from outside to inside over the last two years the inside held its position 76% of the time. So uh, this is going to be an instance. You're, you're going to watch Saturday, watch Sunday. These are different cars, different rules, different characteristics. So the groove preference isn't always transferable. Uh, we did this back in March, but we're going to do it again. This race, David, uh, the contrarian contender. We've been doing it for every race. I'm trying to think how we did last week. I think I had, I had Maddie D. Who'd you have last week? Didn't work out. I uh, had Eric Jones. All right, uh, top a, five. Yeah. Nice one. Not Half, yeah, halfway decent fifth place finish for uh, for young Mr. Jones. Not the Benedetto, bad. I believe, cursed his luck or asked for someone to place voodoo on him after <laughs> Bristol. I don't know, something like that. But, uh, one he, of us he wanted the curse lifted. One of us yeah. usually hit. So <laughs> keep listening to it. Keep paying attention to us. So let's uh, let's talk Atlanta. Contrarian contender pick. I'll let you go first. Who is your contrarian contender 
for Atlanta. So I did pick Matt DiBenedetto previously for Atlanta, but I'm going to change. My new contrarian pick is Christopher Bell because his restarts have been coming together. Uh, I've watched him ever since they've returned from the COVID stoppage, and he has really steadied himself on short runs in some of these recent outings. In the Coca-Cola 600, he gained nine spots on five restart attempts, and he was able to take that and catapult his way to a top 10 finish, and he's never run a 600-mile race in his life. And considering how great he looked at Atlanta in the Xfinity race in 2019, I think now based on the fact that he's had Cup Series repetitions, he is better suited for a good run this weekend at Atlanta than he was earlier this spring when the race was originally slated. Not a bad pick. I had uh, uh, Christopher Bell on Race Hub this week uh, under my A-list segment, and it was a good talk with him because his expectations, uh, he told me, I mean, when he came in to start the season, they fully expected to be a race-winning team. And a few races in, they were like, wow, that's not going to happen this year. <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was a slap, I'm putting my words, a slap in the face, uh, just the reality of it, right? How hard this can be. And uh, maybe the break was good for him because he's been running well so far. So I'm interested to see what he does at the mile and a half like Atlanta. Um, I'm sticking with my pick that I had back in March because my logic is still there and I haven't seen much to take away from that in the races that we've been back. My contrarian contender pick for Atlanta is Clint Boyer, uh, is running well this season. He's coming off a, a second place now in Bristol last week, which is his best finish of the season. Uh, you know, I like all, I like good mojo, good momentum, but he's a top five passer at the steep one and a half milers last year. Uh, tracks like Atlanta, Texas, and Charlotte. And when we go back and look to last year, Boyer finished fifth at Atlanta and second at Texas. So I think he can do it again. I think he's got the passing ability, especially when needed in a 500-mile race. So I'm sticking with Clint Boyer as my contrarian contender. What do you say, David? Uh, Very good passer so far this year as a whole. A a plus 2.02% surplus passing value. That's a top eight ranking. Nice. Um, I, I, I do think that he is in a scenario himself where that team is good and the results aren't totally there. He ranks 19th in peer right now. He, I mentioned that 1.0 is about the average. Well, he's actually at a 1.0 right now. He is an average cup series driver. But I do think he's a little bit better than that if he's able to string together results that rival where he's running. And Atlanta, that's a bit of a gamble. That's a that's a heck of a track, but I uh, I like your style and uh, I like the call. All right, we'll see what they can do. Make sure you watch on Sunday to that. Don't don't forget, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. We are available no matter your device. Our entire catalog of episodes is available for free at pausregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. This, do, this stuff does help in spreading the word. We always notice, and it is so appreciated. Tell a friend, uh, tell someone on Twitter, uh, tell them to watch, you know, listen to the podcast and watch on Sunday. It, it will make you a smarter viewer. It, it's good stuff, I promise. If you have any questions, send them to us on Twitter. We will answer them. 
Send them to us at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you're always working hard. What are you working on? This week on motorsportsanalytics.com, I wrote about the evolution of evaluation for NASCAR Cup Series teams. You know, in 2001, a 43-year-old Ron Hornaday, truck series legend but winless in the Cup Series, was hired by A.J. Foyt for his Cup program, and Hornaday was actually a Rookie of the Year candidate that year. Hmm. Uh, and while I appreciate the driving of Mr. Hornaday, uh, this was always a move with very little upside. Well, it's 20 years after the fact, and that kind of hiring no longer happens. Hmm. So I wondered why. I interviewed Front Row Motorsports General Manager Jerry Fries to discuss how driver evaluation has evolved past that point over the last two decades. Uh, and I think it's fascinating. Give it a read. Uh, it is, of course, free and available to everyone on motorsportsanalytics.com. Good. Make sure you check out that website. You'll learn a lot on there and support motorsports journalism. Uh, David, I'm still on the race hub, so make sure you watch that from 6 p.m. Monday through Thursday on FS1 and keep it on the uh, Fox family of networks all weekend for the three races from Atlanta. I will be back on pit road for the truck race on Saturday. Remember, it's a doubleheader. Trucks first, then Xfinity with the cup race on Sunday. And also to all you out there, don't forget positive regression. Uh, we will do a video preview for Martinsville because it is a week from Wednesday. It's a Wednesday night race. So look on our web, on our Twitter account, Pod, for the video preview for Martinsville. And uh, just make sure you have a fun, safe weekend. David, another good episode. Episode 64 of Positive Progression. For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. Have a great weekend, everybody. Coming to bed, hon? Yep, honey, I'll be right there. Just got to turn out the light. Ow! 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 Ah! Some things never change. Like your kids always leaving tiny toys on the floor for you to step on. And Geico saving folks lots of money on their car insurance. Sweetie, I think I left the downstairs light on. P please don't make me go. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more.